Okay, we're in 1 John 2, 28. Please stand for the reading of God's word. First John 2, 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. So Jess was just reading that, and I'm standing next to my wife, and she's looking at, she's reading these verses. She, she looks at them, she's like, seriously? Like, you're going to cover that? Whew. Good morning. Good to see you all. You enjoying the weather change a little bit? Yes, it's nice to get a little cooler weather. Um, if you haven't been around this fall, we are walking through John's letter, First John, we call it. Uh, we're spending uh, the, the fall doing it. Um, just to remind you, it's been a couple weeks since I've been up here. Um, John kind of tells us why he wrote this letter. And this is in his words. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to a group of house churches in the first century so that they can have assurance that they truly have eternal life. And John defines eternal life as having fellowship with God and fellowship with God's son, Jesus. And so throughout this letter, he's saying when someone truly has fellowship with Jesus and his father, their lives look a certain way. That eternal life that is at work in them manifests itself, bears fruit in a certain kind of life. And so he lays out that life for us. He says, if, if this is the kind of life that you're stepping into, that can give you an assurance that you really are you're a child of God. You do have fellowship with Jesus and, and with God, his Father. So that's what he's doing. Um, and last week, we had Daniel Watts up here, and he taught on verses 1 through 3, which are these three just beautiful, wonderful verses on being God's children. And I gave him that nice softball. 
Uh, and we find out today that those just lovely verses are kind of sandwiched between some really interesting statements that John makes about life uh, lived with Jesus. And so I get to um, take that fastball today and try to work with that. Um, John's point is pretty simple in this passage. Uh, look at verse 29. The point is, is simple. This is the point. If you know that he, the he being God, he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. It's his basic idea. God is righteous, and so people who are following God also will live lives that are similar. So the point is fairly simple, but he says some, some things that create a lot of tension. I don't know about you, but I'm reading this all week. I'm like, man, I don't even know what to do with this tension. He, he makes some comments that make you feel like, I'm in big trouble here. Um, Look at verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Shoot, right? Uh, No one who continues to sin has ever seen him or or known him, okay? Uh, Verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Uh, Because God's sin remains in them, they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. There's such tension in this passage. And I was thinking for most of the week, like, how do I relieve this tension for us? And then I realized that's not my job. Uh, My job is to present plainly the Lord's truth, and I think my job is to hopefully create the right kind of tension, the kind of tension that John wants us to feel. And then we get to deal with that uh, as as we see fit, uh, according to how God moves in us. So I want to start by trying to set the right tension by just setting this passage in its context, all right? So the first thing to remember is that these verses come in the context of this whole letter. We have to remember what John said at the beginning of his letter. So just remember what he said in chapter 1, okay? So go back to chapter 1, verse 8. This is helpful context. Uh, He says, if we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we, claim, uh, sorry, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So there John is clearly saying, yes, we have sinned in our lives, and if we were to claim otherwise, we'd be deceiving ourselves and calling God a liar. Now it sounds like he's saying, well, if you are in him, you don't sin. And if we can assume that John is a decently intelligent guy who doesn't like contradict himself in the same letter, then we have to piece these together in some way. And my sense is what he is saying is, yes, that life in Christ, of course, there is still sin in a person's life. But whatever he's talking about in chapter 3 must be some kind of maybe uh, willful or habitual or, or kind of a high-handed, firmly entrenched position about our sin. Kind of a, um, you know, I think Jess maybe was reading from the, was that ESV? Yeah, so it translates, it makes a practice of sinning. That this is kind of just what I practice. This is what I do. It's, it's a posture towards our sin that says, hey, it is what it is. I don't really care. I'm going to keep doing this. It doesn't make that much difference. I think that is what John is trying to get at um, in this passage. So today, what I want you to be thinking about is not just the particular form of brokenness that's in your life, the particular sins you commit, which we all have those, but I want you to be thinking about what is my posture towards the sin in my life? Do I approach this in a way that's cavalier, like, it is what it is, whatever, I'm going to keep doing this? Or is there a kind of posture that says, no, this isn't, this isn't who I am anymore. This isn't, this isn't what is right. And will I continue to do this at times? Yes. But no, this grieves me because I know it grieves God. So this morning, I want you to be thinking about what is my posture towards very specific sins that are in my life? And there's, there's going to be a tension we feel Yes, there is sin, but there shouldn't be this posture of, this is just kind of what I do. 
Um, and the other context is just to know what was happening historically. Like if you look at verse 7, he says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. And he's saying that because there's a group of people in these house churches who have left the churches and are trying to lead the people astray. And these people have a different gospel. And their gospel goes something like, um, you know, you have some spiritual status. And in light of that status, it doesn't really matter what you do. Like, you're, you're righteous um, just by the status that you have. But how you actually live your daily life doesn't, doesn't really matter. They kind of divorce, like, their spiritual lives from their, their physical, actual day-to-day lives. And John is trying to say, no, <laughs> how you live your life really matters to God. Like, the day-to-day, what you do in, in your life That is what matters. So don't be deceived by that kind of thinking. And I I just want to say that because um, that's obviously, that was a first century thing that was going on. But I see that attitude so alive and well in the church in America today. In in a country where you're kind of free to believe what you want versus I think Christians in other parts of the world don't have this attitude. But, you know, we live in this very consumeristic society. We can approach church in that same way. And so there can be like this very like low bar Christianity that's like, hey, the, you just got to pray a prayer. You got to pray a prayer and get to heaven, right? Pray a prayer, you're in heaven. And then the rest of your life is, is kind of gravy. What you do kind of matters, kind of doesn't really, um, you know, that's just, it is what it is. And um, the New Testament never talks like that, ever, that is just not the, the perspective of the New Testament. And, and the writers are always saying, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray by that kind of thinking. And I was thinking of two other places in the New Testament where the author uses that phrase, don't be deceived. And the theme is almost the same. Listen to this. This is Paul in Galatians. He says this, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You can't mock God by saying, oh, I like you, but I don't really care how I live. Uh, a man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Don't be deceived by saying, it doesn't really matter what you do. No, don't be be deceived. And here's another one. This one's even stronger. I'll just read it. It's so convicting just to read. Uh, But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because why? These are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity. You need to be quiet. (laughs) Foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater. God is not their God. They have other gods. That person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Here comes the phrase. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. If someone says, no, that's not true, don't be deceived with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Okay? All that to say, don't be deceived. How you live your life matters. And so I want to start by giving us the right amount of tension. Will we continue to sin? Will there be brokenness in our lives? Of course. But what is our posture towards that? And my thinking is there's two um, great dangers in the Christian life. Um, one is the danger of legalism, right? And that is the danger of thinking, okay, there's this life that God wants for me, and I've got to do it. I've got to, like, in my own strength, I've got to figure out a way to be good enough for this God. And that's a massive danger that there's nothing fruitful about that life. And, you know, the New Testament regularly warns us against that. But there's another danger, and this is the danger that I'm aware of this morning in light of this passage, and it's the danger of being um, comfortable 
spiritually in a situation that's actually very spiritually dangerous for us, right? To think, I prayed a prayer, I'm in, I'm good, and I, I'm, I'm fine. Like, I can do whatever I want. And to be in a place of comfort and to, not, and to be deceived and to not realize, actually, you are not an authentic believer and not to know that until it is too late, until Christ returns. And we realize, oh my gosh, that, actually what was going on in me wasn't authentic at all. I was deceived. I mean, that, that's actually the most dangerous spiritual spot to be in if you think about it. To think that you're an authentic believer when in fact you're not. And the scary thing is Jesus actually talks to that issue in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, I'm going to come back one day and there's going to be people who were deceived. They, they, they thought that they were part of my kingdom and they'll say, Lord, you know, Lord, Lord, we called you Lord and we did these things. And he's like, I didn't know you. They, they, they were deceived. They were complacent. They were comfortably deceived. And that is a, that's a great danger. And so I think my job today is to is to, um, to, to help us see the life that God calls us into, but not in a way that leads to legalism, right? That's, that is, how do we see the life that God wants for his children, but not be moved to like, all right, now we're going to do it in our own strength, okay? That is the goal. Um, that is, I think, what John would, would want us to do. That's what he's trying to do. So um, that's kind of long-winded introduction, but what I want to do today, rather than go verse by verse, I want to step back and, and try to get inside of what is the worldview that John has about life in this world? And I'm going to argue that's the same worldview that Jesus has. It's the same worldview that the Apostle Paul and Peter and all the original disciples all have this very similar view of the world. What is their view of the gospel? Like, what is the gospel? And I just want to try to get us inside of their vision of reality, especially their vision of what the good news is. And I'm, I'll just tell you up front, the good news is a miracle. Like what can happen in a person's life through Jesus Christ is a miracle. And we have to see it for the miracle that it is if we're going to understand anything that John is trying to tell us here. All right? So let me get you inside of the worldview today, and then I'll just bring us back to a couple of things he says in this passage. Are you with me? On this journey, you are, are you feeling the appropriate level of tension? Okay, so here's the worldview. Uh, it, it begins with a basic assumption about the world, and it's this. We are living in a magical world. Uh, we are living in an enchanted world. And I'm not talking about uh, a Disney cartoon or a fairy tale, but by that, what I mean is we live in a spiritual world. And there are spiritual beings in this reality that we can't see. There's more to life than we can see and touch that our science can measure. There are spiritual beings that are real persons, but immaterial, invisible beings. That is, that is the premise of the world that we live in. And there's good news to that, and there's bad news to that. Okay, the bad news, I'll start with the bad news. And the bad news is this, this world is under a dark spell. And that's what John says at the end of his letter. Let me read, read this to you. This is First uh, John uh, 5, 19, one of the last verses in, in this letter. He says this, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Um, I believe in the sovereignty of God. And so I can forget verses like this. That somehow, even though God is somehow in control of all this, in his 
control. He has, and he has allowed this situation to exist, that the world is under the control of what John calls the evil one. He is referring to the devil in our passage, or we might call him Satan. And whatever image you have of Satan, um, you might need to scrap it. If you have the picture of a man in, a, you know, in, in little horns and a red suit and a pitchfork, and uh, if you're here and you're like, seriously, you still believe in that kind of thing? Like, I'm like, yeah, I still believe in that kind of thing. I think all these guys did. But, but whatever he is, he is a personal, dark spirit that is, is utterly anti-God and has been from the beginning. And, and he has cast a spell on the world that we live in. I mean, I couldn't help but think of stories like the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you have, you have Narnia, this, this land that is created by Aslan, but then there's this evil white witch who casts a spell over the land to make it, remember, always winter and never what? Yeah, always winter, never Christmas. It's the worst of all worlds, right? It's like this dark spell, and, and people are, are living under that spell. And, and, and in our passage, um, John mentions say, uh, the devil, as he calls him, in verse 8. Uh, he's uh, mentioned in verse 10 again. Um, but there's a couple things we know about him from this passage. One is we learn what he's been doing from the beginning of time. Look at verse 8. Uh, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. And here's the statement. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay, whatever else he is, he is a being that has been sinning from the beginning. He has a posture towards sin that is incredibly entrenched, entrenched for century after century after century. He is so anti-God. He is so anti-God's qualities of love and forgiveness and grace. He is all about self and violence and all of this. And he is so deeply entrenched in that posture of sin. In John's gospel, we learn there's something else that he's been doing from the beginning. Uh, he's a murderer from the beginning. And he was a liar from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So um, he's, been he's been lying and he's been sinning from the beginning. And he has cast a spell of sin and lies over this world. And so to be born into this world today is in some, just by literally being physically born into this world is to be born into a world that is under a dark force, okay? That, I know that sounds crazy. I know that sounds, sounds like, you know, kind of magic fairy tale stuff. That is, that is the biblical worldview. Um, that's Paul's worldview. Let me, let me show you what Paul says about being born into this world. Um, he's reminding people of what they were before they came to know Jesus, and he says, this is Ephesians 2. He says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed, look at the language, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, who's that? Satan, yeah. The spirit who is now at work in the children of disobedience. And then Paul, he's not pointing the fingers at others. He brings himself into this. He says, all of us were this way. We're born into this. All of us lived among them at one time, 
gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. We were all born into this broken world under the control, under the spell of these lies and sin. And notice the language he uses. We were children of wrath, or at the end, the children of disobedience. And what our passage is saying, and it's very shocking language, uh, it's asking the question, whose child are you? (laughs) And there's two possibilities in our passage. You can be a child of God, or you can be a child of the evil one. Look at verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. He's assuming there are people in this world that we would call, they are the children of the devil. And I feel like I'm like a, one of these conservative old, you know, old school preachers talking to high schoolers who are out drinking and partying. You guys are children of the devil, you know. But this is, this is, the, this is the language that, Paul, that, that John is using. And by children of the devil, he's not saying the devil created you. Uh, He's not even saying you even know who the devil is or you're intentionally pursuing the devil. You might not not even believe that he exists. But what that language I think is intended to convey is this. Well, you are in line, you are living uh, in, in league with the spell that he's cast in this world. So look at verse eight. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Why? Because the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. You're doing the kinds of things that the devil does. In that sense, you are a child of the devil. You're bearing the family resemblance, we would say today, right? He also, by that means, I think probably that it's the devil's spell that has placed within your heart thoughts that are counter to God and and actions that are counter to God. So that you're not living the way that God designed you is made in his image. So we're children of the devil in the sense of we are under this spell that the devil casts. And um, what's so scary about this is uh, I think John would say that about very secular and worldly people, right, who are living these wild lives. But the other thing is being this kind of child can happen right within the church itself. It can happen among very... Uh, respectable and moral and religious people. In fact, Jesus, the only time he uses this language is to talk about the most religious people of his day, which are the Pharisees. Remember the encounters he has with the Pharisees? Let me, let me just show you. Jesus has this um, great conversation with the Pharisees. I don't think he you know, won friends and influenced people on this one. Um, but they're in this, this is John 8, and they're in this debate. And Jesus says, you know, if you were Abraham's children, he's talking to Pharisees who are Jews, children of Abraham, uh, you would do the things Abraham did. No, no, you're doing the things your own father does. And they respond, well, the only father we have is God himself. And Jesus says, well, actually, if God were your father, uh, you would love me because I came from God and I'm now here. No, um, you belong to your father, the devil. Whoops. Ah. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now you guys want to murder me. So what's scary is this, this idea, can, it, it can be worldly people, secular people, but it can be very rid, religious and, and moral people. And these, that's what these guys were, religious and moral. But inside, they were so full of pride and even violence and greed and, and uh, you know, self-righteousness and judgmentalism. All right, so that's the bad news. There is a dark force who has cast a spell in this world, and there are people who are born into that that are called children of the evil one. Under this kingdom. All right, let's move to the good news. Which is what gospel means, by the way. Good news. And 
I said it already, but I, I, what I want us to experience today is, is just to remember the gospel is a miracle, okay? It is a supernatural thing. It is magic, <laughs> true magic. And if we don't, if, until we understand that, we will not understand what John is saying here. So here's the good news. You've heard it before. I want you to hear it again in a fresh way. The good news is this. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is sent essentially into enemy territory to break a spell, the spell that the evil one has, has created, to free people and to turn people into children of God. That is the good news. And Jesus, in this passage, in like five different ways, is described as righteous. Um, let's see, verse, verse 5, in him is no sin. Verse 3, just as he is pure. Verse 29, he is righteous. In contrast to Satan, who's been sinning from the beginning, Jesus never sins. He's entirely and perfectly pure and beautiful and good. He is everything that God desires a human being to be. And he came to break that spell of sin. Look at verse 5. But you know that he appeared, why? So that he might take away our sins. Verse 8. Second half of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, what is the devil's work? Where it just told us that the devil's been sinning from the beginning. He wants to destroy the devil's work, which means he wants to destroy the work of sin. So Jesus came to take away sins, to destroy sins in people's lives. And the way he does that is, first off, by going to the cross. By not coming with a gun and shooting down sin in us, right? But by actually taking sin upon himself on the cross and paying the penalty for our sin. So that we might experience forgiveness. That, that, that God might deal with sin, and it needs to be dealt with, in Jesus, and he would take that on himself so that now sinful people like you and me could experience his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, and not be condemned, not have his complete love and approval. So the cross, he deals with the penalty of sin, but he doesn't want to just deal with the penalty of sin. He doesn't want to just deal with the guilt of sin. He wants to deal with sin. He wants to break the power of sin in people's lives. And so the first step of that is the cross. The second step of that is what we call the new birth. Because he wants to get inside a person's life and make a supernatural transformation so that the power of sin is broken. Okay, and that's what really the theme of this chapter is all about is the, is the new birth. There's all, I don't know if you picked up, but there's all this birth language of being born, of God being our father, as, of, as us being his children, that we are born of him, we live in him. All this birthing language, and as I've said, a new birth, it's a miracle. It is a supernatural act of God. You look at chapter 3, verse 1. Look at verse 1 in our passage. John is marveling at what a miracle this is. What great love the Father has lavished on it that we should be called children of God, exclamation point. And that is what we are, exclamation point. He's, he's stoked about something. Like, this is amazing what's happened. It's crazy that this could, ha could happen. I want, you, I want to take you to John's gospel and show you two passages that talk about the new birth and how John talks about it. Okay, so keep a finger here or keep your place marker here. Go to the gospel of John chapter 1. Okay, I'm going to take you to some familiar passages, 
but hopefully you maybe see them in a new light as we, as we look at this whole worldview of this picture of reality that's been gi- given to us. Chapter 1. Uh, let's go to verse 10. This is talking about this rescue operation, Jesus coming into this world. And verse 10 says this. He was in the world... And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. How does the world not recognize its creator? Well, it's under a spell. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Of course, they're under a spell. And then here comes the gospel. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right or the power or the authority to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. A person can be born into this world in the flesh, and then one day they can be born of the living God, and it's a miracle. And I want, I want to get inside of the miracle. Now turn to chapter 3 of John. This is one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. Obviously, John 3.16 is part of, this, part of this passage. We're not going to read that verse. But here's how the new birth works. Try to get inside of this. So great conversation. Jesus is going to have a conversation with Nicodemus, who was a religious Pharisee, a religious leader of the time. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, most likely because he's kind of feeling like I shouldn't meet with this guy by day. I don't know what people think of this. So they meet at night, and they have a a very interesting spiritual conversation. Uh, Nicodemus, or yeah, Nicodemus kicks it off. Uh, now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling councils. This is a spiritual hotshot, okay? Uh, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So we recognize that you're a pretty impressive teacher. And Jesus respli- replies in a way that really catches Nicodemus off guard. Off guard. He says, um, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, unless they are born again. What's he saying there? I think he's recognizing this is a fallen world. This world is under a curse. And because of that, people aren't going to see the kingdom. They're not going to see God for who he is unless something really dramatic happens in their lives. And it's so dramatic that I'll, I'll compare it to being born again. Like, start over, start again, new birth. That's what needs to happen in a person's life to grasp this because of the, the control of this current world. Nicodemus is confused. Verse 4, how can someone be born when they're old? Uh, surely you can't enter a second time into your mother's womb, can you, to be born again? Uh, Jesus answers, truly I tell you, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So Jesus is saying, you have to be born again. By being born again, what I mean is you have to be born of water and you have to be born of Spirit. Now, what the heck is he saying there? Okay? He is referencing the prophet Ezekiel in a prophecy that Ezekiel made centuries earlier. Here's the prophecy, another famous passage. This is God speaking to his wayward people about a time when he is going to work uh, 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 just a work of renewal in them. And here's what he says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you 
from all your impurities and from all your idols. God's saying, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to wash you clean of all these broken, dirty, horrible things you've been doing, and I will, I will cleanse you with water. And that's the water that Jesus is talking about. And then he goes on to talk about spirit. I love one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I will give you a new heart because you need a new heart. I'm not going to, this is like heart transplant. This is big time stuff here, okay? I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, that hard heart that is resistant to God. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that is soft and open and receptive to God. How am I going to do this? I'm going to put my spirit in you. And I'm going to move in you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jesus says, that's what has to happen in a person's life. Cleansed by God, and then his spirit has to enter into their spirit and do something to give them a a completely new heart. Jesus goes on, verse six, flesh gives birth to flesh. You know, this flesh, all it can do is give birth to more flesh, but the spirit can give birth to new spiritual life. And then he makes a comparison, verse 8, with the wind. And in Greek, this was written in, wind and spirit are the exact same word. It's actually, he doesn't even change words. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. That's how it is with everyone born in the spirit. It's like, you know the wind? It's like this magical invisible force. You can't control it. You can't predict it, but you know when it's moving. I mean, you can feel it when it's happening. That's how it is with the Spirit of God. Where there is no life, the Spirit can breathe in and and bring life and transformation. We had some friends over last night. Uh, We were having dinner out in our backyard, and, and there was a moment we actually, I verbalized it where, you know, it's been a little hot. I don't know if you guys noticed it's been hot lately. There's a moment where a breeze came, and it, was, and it was like a different level of cool. We were like, oh, yes. Like you felt where things had been stagnant, just hot and, you know, just tough. Like, oh, this, this renewal, this refreshment came. And Jesus is saying that, that's what new birth is. It's this supernatural act of God by his spirit. Because this world is under the control of the evil one. And that kind of power is what is required for someone to genuinely turn to the true and living God. It's a supernatural act. It's magic. It's spiritual. Now, practically speaking, what it feels like to experience that is simply we come to faith, right? We come to faith in God. We we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And there is this new hunger for God himself, where there was a hunger for things of the world, whether it's status or money or approval or, or you name it, success, all that, there is this fresh hunger for God. <laughs> like, God, you're the thing that I want. And where, where there was a place in our lives where it was about control, like, I'm going to control my life, I'm going to call the shots, whether I do that by living a really wild life or by trying to keep all the rules, however I do that, where there was control, there is release, there is surrender to oh my gosh, you're in charge of my life. I'm not in charge of my life. Your wind blows in my life. And I need to surrender to that. Where there were voices inside that were dark, hard voices of accusation, of, self, of guilt, of all those things, there is a new voice that emerges that says something like, 
You're my child. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. There's no condemnation. It's okay. I love you. I even like you. I even like you. Sometimes that one takes years later than the love one part. That's what I'm learning at least. Um, there's a new voice. Becoming a Christian is a miracle. Going to church is not a miracle. Reading your Bible is not a miracle. Joining a small group is not a miracle. Giving money to great organizations is not a miracle. Becoming a Christian is a miracle. It is an act of power of the living God to deliver you from an evil power. I had coffee with a friend two weeks ago who I haven't seen for four years. He used to go to this church and we got together and he started and he's, and, and this guy's been in the church his whole life. I've experienced him as a great guy his whole life. He starts and says, Dave, turns out I got saved two years ago. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I've been in the church my whole life. Um, and I can't share the details. Not, don't have that. But I can't share that. But he was stuck in some stuff and things were going on in his, in his life. He's like, honestly, God, I think God saved me two years ago. And he had this, this unbelievable change and, and this conviction of some really tough stuff in his life. But also this experience, this profound experience of God's forgiveness and true love for him. And he looks back on 20, 25 years like, Honestly, look, I was just checking boxes. Like I was, go to church, boom, read my Bible in the morning, boom. It's like now there's a hunger for these things. And I feel forgiven for the first time. Like I got saved. The miracle happened. And it's different than just doing church. And, and I don't share that story, say that there's some formula for what the miracle needs to look like. I mean, for some of us, it's an event. It's like a, some of you could have a date in your heads. I, you know, 1967, I was at the, you know, Billy Graham crusade and I walked up and, and you have a date and there was, there was a moment. For some of you, it's a season of life. There's this six month, 12 month period. Well, gosh, man, things were stern and it wasn't a moment, but it, there was a season. And for some of us, it's just this gradual thing. It happened when we were five and it was real when we were five and it's stuck since we were five. So there's no formula. It doesn't need to be dramatic. Um, it doesn't need to look a certain way, but whatever However it happened, it's a miracle. And John wants us to marvel in the miracle. And that's a, a, a long-winded description of a biblical worldview. And to bring us back to our passage, I say all of that because I think John's perspective is this. When the miracle happens, when you are truly born of God, things change. They just do. When it's real and authentic, things change. Do you still have sin? Of course. Will you fall into sin again? Of course. But there is a new direction. There is a new trajectory. There's a new heart. There's a new desire for God. Look at verse 9. Go back to First John 3, verse 9. Here's his perspective. It's pretty wild here. Um, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Will we sin? Yes. But that sort of entrenched, making a practice of sinning, I don't really care sort of attitude. No one who's born of God is going to have that attitude. Why? Because, here's what he says, because God's seed remains in them, they can't go on sinning because they've been born of God. Okay, now the Greek word for seed is the word sperma. 
And you know what English word we get from that? God's sperma remains in him. Uh, Commentators call this a bold and daring metaphor. Okay? That's what my commentary said. This is a bold and daring metaphor. Um, What's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit who comes and, and enters our hearts. God implants his own spirit, his own life within us and begins to bear fruit. Just as God implanted life within Mary and Jesus was born, in some way God does that to all children of God. And his, his Holy Spirit is in us and he's at work in us. And he's changing us. We call it the fruit of the Spirit, right? He's pr- beginning to produce Christ-like qualities of love and patience and humility and wisdom and courage and, and self-control and, and all of these things. Um, Paul says it this way, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. That's got to count for something, right? Peter puts it this way, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. If the miracle has happened, life changes. It has to, I think, is what John's assumption is. So what I think, just to kind of bring this home, what I think authentic faith feels like is this. On the one hand, it feels like chapter one. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Authentic faith feels like this. Ah, God, I'm a sinner. Uh, And actually, I think the, the the longer I go on this, the more I'm aware of my sin. Like, the Spirit is revealing new depths of my sin. I am more aware of my sin today than I was when I was 20. Like, truly. So in one sense, it, it, it gets worse. <laughs> you know, like, or you're more aware that you're broken, that you're a sinner, because you weren't ready to even know, you know, what was going on. So it does feel like that. Oh, man, I, I have sin, and, and I'm going to go to your cross every day for forgiveness for that. But on the other hand, it also means chapter 3, Right? They cannot go on sinning. It means in some sense a posture that says, I can't go on sinning. I can't, I can't keep living this way. This is not who I am anymore. God, this is not what you're up to in my life. Will I fall back into this from time to time? Tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe. Yes, yes. But no, this isn't me. You are at work in me. And you're going to have your way in and with me. And so what I'm doing right now, this is not part of my future. This is part of my past. I can't, I can't, this is not who, this is not what I, I think that's the, that's the right tension that I think authentic faith feels like. All right, so what do we do? I have no idea what time it is. Well, there's not a second, a third service, so we're good. Um, uh, what do we, well, like, okay, I've heard all this. What, what do we do? I think that is the worldview. That is, that is the miracle. Um, I think what we do is, is what, Paul, what John tells us to do at the very beginning of this passage. Look once more, one more time at verse 28. Here's, this is actually the one command in the whole passage. And now, dear children, okay? Claiming all that I just said. You're children of God. His spirit has changed you. He's at work in you, right? Dear children, what do you do? Simply put, continue in him. And by that, I mean, don't continue on your own. Don't think, oh, man, I'm reading this passage, and okay, I, I got to figure out how to not sin anymore. So I'm going to, tomorrow, I'm going to set some new resolutions. I'm going to put some new things in place and all that, and I'm going to make this happen. No, don't do that. Continue in him. 
Here's, what, here's how Paul puts it in Galatians um, chapter 3. Ignore all of that. Okay, here we go. Um, this is such a great, great m- moment in Galatians. Paul says to these people who became Christians, he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by doing stuff? Or did you receive by believing what you heard? When the gospel came to you and the Spirit moved in your life, how'd that happen? Was it by you guys doing good stuff? Or was it by simply putting your faith in what you'd heard? Answer, putting your faith. It's by believing, by faith. And then he goes on to say this. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to achieve your goal by human effort? Like this whole thing, the miracle started with the Spirit. He did this work in your life. He, he gave you a new sense of things, a new conviction, a new comfort. And, and now you're going you're gonna to run with that and try to do this on your own? And isn't that the great temptation of the Christian life, especially if you've been doing this for like a decade or four decades? Right? Like, God, the gospel was saved by grace. That was awesome. I've got 50 years left to live. What do I do with that? All right, thank you for the miracle. Thanks for doing that. I guess I need to pick that up. I need to run with this, and I need to do my best to maybe live up to that miracle. And Paul's like, no. It starts with the miracle. Don't move from the miracle. Stay with the Spirit. Stay with God. You became a Christian by faith. You stay a Christian by faith. You grow as a Christian by faith. It never moves beyond faith. So continue in him. Continue to lean into him. Continue to trust in him. Rehearse the gospel to yourself every single day and live as though it's still true. Right? How do we do that? Well, first off, continue in what he did on the cross. Continue in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So today, if any particular sins have emerged for you and there's conviction, what do we do? We continue in him. We go back to the cross. There's grace. There's forgiveness. We don't walk away from that. Come back to it and experience his cleansing, freeing forgiveness in your life. Uh, And then the other way we continue in him this is a little weird, but I'll end with this, is we continue to allow him to do the work. Oops, you can get that. Um, You continue to allow him to do the work in our lives that he wants to do. And I'm going to leave you with this verse. Um, I read it already. Verse 8, the second half of verse 8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, which is the work of sin. What that means, I think, is that Jesus wants to give you forgiveness through his cross. He wants to take away the guilt of sin. But he also wants to be a destroyer of sin in your life. He wants to step into your life and destroy the sins that are there. Remove the power that those sins have to free you to be the person God most fully made you to be. And so to continue in him, rather than trying to do this, and our, on our own efforts, is to just every day wake up and lay our lives before Jesus. Say, Lord, my life is yours again. I want to release control. And I want to allow you to be a destroyer of sin in my life. That feels like a scary thing to say to you. But here's my life. Here's the stuff I'm aware of. And I'm giving you access to it all. Be as gentle as you can be, please. Right? But you have the run of the mill. You, you have... You get to walk through the house and 
you do what you want. I want to continue in you. I don't want to do this on my own. It never works when I do it on my own. So I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you forgiveness, and I'm going to lay my life before you every day, and you get to destroy whatever sins you want to destroy in whatever timing and ways you want to do that. And I promise if that is our posture every day of coming to his forgiveness and being open to his work, over time we will see change and growth. So that is the call. Verse 28, now, dear children, continue in him, John ends, so that, When he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Don't you want to be unashamed when Christ returns? How how can you possibly be unashamed? I don't think unashamed means, Jesus, look at me, I'm perfect. I did it all perfectly. But what I think unashamed looks like is this, Lord, I'm a broken, messed up person, but I fought the good fight of faith. I kept trusting in you, and and I kept the faith in you, and I stand before you a trusting, believing person. That is what unashamed looks like. That's what we want. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, this is uh, a lot to take in today, and I know some of this might even sound crazy. Uh, to some of us in this room. It might sound very far-fetched or offensive or just weird. And so my, my prayer right now is that you would just minister to us through your Holy Spirit, as we, especially as we, as we uh, join you at these tables and, and celebrate communion together, that uh, this would be a time where you minister to us. So would you do that? Would, would you move in and among us right now? Would, you, would your spirit... Do that fresh work of the wind blowing into our lives where we need conviction, where there is no conviction. Would you bring conviction? Where we need to be comforted, where we need to experience your forgiveness, your love for us, where we need to be challenged, whatever it is each one of us needs, and you know what that is. Would you, we just want to say we invite you. We invite you to move among us right now and to do the work that only you can do so that we can be more fully your children today than we were when we came here, Lord. So have your way in us even now as we honor you through this great celebration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity to respond to all this uh, today in a few, a few ways. We have these, these tables uh, up here which, which hold these beautiful symbols of Christ's death and sacrifice, his body broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. And so we can respond by remembering him as he called us to do when we take this, uh, coming up with 